We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hello, this is Cheryl Broderson, and I'm in studio with... Jasmine Allnut. And this is kind of a happy, sad day. Uh, This is the second to the last uh, that we'll be doing together for a while. I know, I know. But Taking a pause. That's right. But (laughs) as Jasmine knows, there are two free beds always at my house <laughs> That is true. I will keep that in mind. Yes. Thank you. And we will do a podcast. I've stayed there before. That's right. <laughs> and so that will be really exciting. But because it's Jasmine is finishing up, she's about to move to Montana to be a history uh, professor. Mm-hmm. They're going to call her prof. Oh, gosh, prof I Jasmine. Yeah. Ew, I don't like that. Yeah, just... <laughs> but she's moving to Montana. So she's going to tell us Mm-hmm. Um, about two people that she's like, I cannot leave or take a break, a long break, until I have told them about. Right. About, well, first, Ann Bradstreet. That's right. So we're going to, yes. And so it's kind of random. The way you guys just peek behind the curtain here, the way you guys hear these episodes will be totally different because I rearrange them <laughs> sometimes. But uh, this one is going to just fall right in with uh, the Puritans who we've been uh, looking at, well, we kind of, we've talked about them a lot. And we looked at a couple other women during that era, uh, Elizabeth Bunyan and John, uh, Sarah Edwards, and um, we're going to be doing Susanna Wesley, those kind of folks. And so in that same time period, I thought, let me sneak one more gal in. And then the other one you'll hear later on. And Next oh, week. my favorite. Next week. Yes. yes. Another, <laughs> another time. I can't wait. So again, the Puritans, as you might remember, hopefully, if you've been listening along with us, you know that they were really prominent in 17th century church history. Uh, we've talked about them several times. Um, and one of the most notable of the women of that era was uh, a woman named Anne Bradstreet. And some of you might have heard of her because she's actually acknowledged as America's first poet. I know there was also Phyllis Wheatley. Yeah, but was she, she came later. later? Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that would have been way later. And, what am I thinking? Bradstreet's in the 1600s. Yeah, it's like 1600s. I know. I was just thinking. I mean, that was she's, just first she's one of the first people to come to America. Yes, she is. I don't even know what I was thinking there. I, don't I just either, had a brain but that fart. That was kind of okay. fun. <laughs> I love that when you have that. Thank you. Because you're That's actually a, so brilliant. And it's right. like, nice I can, I can to... have a moment, you know, an episode. <laughs> Please. It makes me feel human. Oh, good. Um, but the funny thing is, all of her poetry was published without her knowledge or permission. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. We'll get that into is. how that happened. That I know. Uh, kind of like how the 95 Theses were published without Luther's permission. And look what happened there. So um, Anne Dudley, that was her maiden name. She was born around 1612 to Thomas and Dorothy Dudley in Northampton, England. Right. British girl. And Thomas was a steward of the Earl of Lincoln. And so the Dudleys were well-to-do. Um, I wouldn't say they were like aristocracy if he was a servant. But, you know, would, would that be even classed as gentry or just a That would be servant? middle class. But just, middle yeah. class was pretty special in those yeah, days. you were lucky to make it there. You know, middle <laughs> class was, you know, middle class was just, the gentry didn't mind every once in a while marrying someone who was middle class. Mm, they just mm-hmm. wouldn't go to the lower classes. Exactly. So think um, Jane Austen. Hey, there you go. She was yes. the middle class. Respectable family, mm-hmm. that kind of a thing. And we will be doing Jane Austen at Oh, you point. will? Yay. Oh, yes. Okay, good. So um, not surprisingly, though, this meant that uh, Thomas and Dorothy's children, including Anne, were at least were educated, right? Because, again, they're from a, you know, a good, solid family and, you know, that kind of a thing. And so, um, again, not not upper class, but middle. 
Um, in fact, when Anne was only about seven years old, her dad was able to hire some tutors to come in and teach her dancing, music, languages. Those are all the kinds of things that the gentry in the upper class would be learning as well. And the middle class, too. The middle class was very much into learning music and that. Education. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So in uh, 1628, when Anne was only 16 years old, she married Simon Bradstreet, who was the son of a Puritan minister and also part of the Earl's household. Um, I believe Simon worked with Anne's dad, you know, just on the property, kind of helping manage the Earl of uh, Lincoln's affairs, that kind of a thing. And so, again, as you probably know, if you've been listening to the previous episodes, uh, this was becoming a pretty volatile time in English history. Okay, so when I mentioned the Puritans, this was, you know, during that whole time when things were heating up. Remember, the Tudor line had ended, right, with Elizabeth I, the Virgin Queen. And so the line ended with her, was passed on to her cousin, uh, James I, and so that began the reign of the Catholic Stuart kings, right? In fact, uh, Anne was born during the reign of James I, and then by the time she was married, now, his son Charles was on the throne. Okay, but James claimed to be a Protestant, uh-huh. uh, but Sneaky. he had the Catholic <laughs> leanings. Catholic leanings, yes. And, and That's a good way to put it. And what he did is um, Charles I married a Catholic. And that's where they're like, wait a second. Yeah, hold What's on going here. On? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so something then, fishy going on here. Yes. That's when the, you know, the gig was up. Yeah, exactly. And so, and remember, you know, this goes back to Henry VIII, the Church of England, the state church was headed by the reigning monarch. So whatever way the king or queen leaned, that's mm-hmm. the way that the church, the established church, the Church of England now, would go. They wouldn't let James be a king unless he claimed to be a Protestant and he had to sign a document saying Oh, that's he was right. A yes, yes. But we know, like you said, he leaned the other way. And so that he, he rebelled, actually. And that's why he he arranged the marriage. With a, a Catholic what a booger. aristocracy <laughs> to, you know, do that. Mm-hmm. And so since that, you know, that was their leaning, obviously that's going to be a problem for any— Especially uh, Puritans. Yes. Dissenter. What, we, what you know, we've called them dissenters, nonconformists, all those groups. Separatists. Separatists. That's another term that was used. And, and that would include, of course, the Puritans because they wanted to, as their name indicates, purify the Church of England or at least, at the very least, be able to worship freely you know, outside, if that's what they had to do. And they were not allowed to do that. If you remember John Bunyan, John Elizabeth Bunyan, like almost their entire marriage, he was in prison, right? Mm -hmm. Because he was a Baptist. So he was a dissenter, an outsider, a separatist. And so uh, tensions are obviously starting to heat up between the Puritans and the king by this time. Um, Although this is still, again, this is 1620. So it wouldn't be another, it would be another 20 years until that would actually lead to the overthrow of the monarchy. And that's, as you know, in Cromwell, Parliament, those guys, Uh, came in and ushered in the Commonwealth. Um, But in the meantime, you know, here we are in the 1620s and a group of Puritans, it's kind of like they started to see the writing on the wall maybe a little bit. Uh, Some of them stayed in England, as we know, of course, because that's how the Commonwealth even happened. But some of them realized that, you know what, in order to worship freely, maybe we need to just leave England and get a fresh start somewhere else. That might be a better option. And so even though Simon and Anne you know, their parents, their families had a comfortable, stable life in England. Uh, They must have believed uh, it was worthwhile to put their relationship with God first and sacrifice those comforts for freedom of worship. And, you know, think about it. You had the pilgrims that already came over on the Mayflower. Yes. And they had come over 10 years earlier. Mm -hmm. So there was a precedent being set here. Mainly the Puritans were saying, come to America. Yeah, exactly. And so and so this was an opportunity 
to become what uh, John Winthrop, who led this group, uh, famously called a city on a hill. That's right. And the whole goal was to be an example to England and the world of this godly society that was established on biblical principles. That's That's, right. That's kind of what they were shooting for here. That's the Mayflower Compact. What is it? The Mayflower? Oh, this was, well, this is Massachusetts Bay Colony. So maybe that would be with Mayflower. Mayflower was the uh, Pilgrims. Yeah, but, you know, they were Puritans. So they had the, they made that agreement that they were going to create this um, utopia. Good society. Yeah. Yeah. And I think these were, these specific ones, this is interesting because this particular group of Puritans wanted to win England over to their way of thinking. They thought if we can perform this grand experiment spiritually here and being this spiritually exemplar colony, exemplary colony, then maybe, you know, England will come around. (laughs) And so uh, in 1630, again, 10 years after the Mayflower sailed in 1620, uh, Anne was now 18 years old, and she and Simon, along with her parents, Thomas and Dorothy, sailed on that famous voyage to the infant American colonies with hundreds of other Puritans. And again, they were led by John Winthrop. And so, again, the one distinction, because I was, I, you know, I think sometimes this gets convoluted in my mind, um, between the the pilgrims who went earlier and the, these Puritans, was that these particular Puritans were still wanting to, like I said, win over the Church of England. The pilgrims had realized or come to the decision, there's no hope. So we're just separating. Well, completely. the pilgrims we're had gonna do already left England. Yeah, and they gone were gone. To they Holland were, and then came to yes, the United exactly. States. They'd already gone to Holland first, and mm-hmm. so they had completely uh, disassociated themselves from the Church of yeah, England. They had no hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no hope. <laughs> we're starting over. Exactly, and so that those are the ones that were on the Mayflower that went to Plymouth Rock, and so sometimes you know we can get confused, like who's who here. Well, because they both end up in Massachusetts. Yeah, too. they're both in the same area. Exactly. Um, so these guys, these Puritans with Anne and Simon Bradstreet, they sailed on the Arbella. That was the name of their ship. And ultimately they would found the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which was northwest of Plymouth. In fact, if you look on a map, uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony really comprises most of what we would call Massachusetts today. And then Plymouth was kind of Cape Cod, like that whole little peninsula area. That was the Plymouth Colony. Well, you you went to so. college in that area. Yeah, so I did. I love Massachusetts. Why. Yeah, yes, I nerd out on this go. stuff. Yeah. yeah, no, I love this because I want to go. <laughs> I love Boston. It's my favorite city in America. Just the history and everything. So, um, for the Puritans, um, especially the Bradstreets and the Dudleys, who were well-to-do people, again, you got to think that this was a pretty remarkable step of faith and a choice to honor God and walk in their convictions because they didn't necessarily have to do this. They could have stayed very comfortably in England. And also, too, I had read that um, the people that came over were really put off by the harshness of the weather. Because, you know, (laughs) uh, our seasons, the East Coast seasons are more um, intense. Yeah, So the winters were colder Mm. and more snow and— Yes. And the— um, summers were hotter, more intensely hotter, and they weren't Humid. used to that. Yeah, yeah. You know? That's a good point. Yeah, you know, England, even though it's cold, it's pretty temperate. It is, totally. It's it doesn't island. change that much mm-hmm. in temperature, but this was dramatic. It was pretty harsh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, yeah. And then they had Indians. <laughs> they didn't have to deal with Indians in, you know, in, there was the threat of Indians. There mm-hmm. were some friendly Indians, and then there were some that were suspicious they're coming. So it's not an easy situation. Not it's at very all. primitive. Yes. Yeah. Very. Especially if you're coming from Europe. Europe's been established for centuries and centuries. I mean, this is really. And and there's housing. I mean, there's houses that are built out of, you know, uh, structured in stone and neighborhoods and communities. Yep. 
But this is not like not even remotely. Exactly. Um, And so here they are just really trailblazing in what's now in the Massachusetts, you know, the state of Massachusetts, Massachusetts Bay Colony. But uh, it's neat because ultimately both Anne's father and her husband, Simon, actually would play a key role in establishing the colony. Um, Both even served as governors at various times. Um, In fact, uh, Thomas and Simon were instrumental in the founding of Harvard University in 1636, which is a pretty cool thing. And that's something that's actually really, um, I think, commendable of the Puritans. They were really big on literacy because they wanted people to read the Bible. They wanted everyone to be able to read God's word. And so, I mean, women, children, you know, it didn't matter. Everybody needs to learn to read. And that's Harvard's beginning was was, about— yes. You know, um, Christian education. Exactly. A lot of those schools that we now consider the Ivy League schools, they were all seminaries, Yale, yeah, Princeton, all of them Mm -hmm. were originally seminaries. You might remember that, that Jonathan Edwards was asked to become the president of Princeton at one point. So, you know, this is what they were big on. And so I love that right away. I mean, really, 1636, that's only six years after they landed. They were already like, okay, we're setting up a university. It's like, wow. And again, primitive. Yes. Very remarkable. Um, Okay. So we should... I guess it should be noted initially, um, Anne was very honest about her misgivings with all of this. So, you know, I mean, it's not like, oh, I'm just a woman of faith. No big deal. She was not sure about leaving that good life in England. She was she had a hard time. And she actually later wrote about this very honestly to her children. And she said, I changed my condition and was married and came into this country where I found a new world and new manners of which my heart rose in anger. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But after I was convinced it was the way of God, I submitted to it and joined to the church at Boston. And so, and ultimately, you know, really through prayer and struggling through this with the Lord, um, came to believe, okay, this is what the Lord has for us. And she did. She settled beautifully into that rugged colonial life. Uh, she dealt constantly with illnesses. Uh, but in the midst of all of that, somehow she bore eight children. And I couldn't find if they all survived infancy or not. Maybe if you, I don't know if you know that or not, but uh, she did have eight kids and, sur- you know, survived all of them, which is amazing or survived those pregnancies. Um, So the Bradstreets actually ended up moving several times uh, throughout the colony. Uh, The Arbella landed in what would now be the city of Salem. But soon the Puritans uh, began moving on to what would become their city on a hill, which was Boston. That's what ended up becoming the city on a hill. They moved because of hunger, too. And I think that's important, too, that, you know, the crops weren't working Mm -hmm. like they thought. And they had to learn even— New foods and new things to plant mm-hmm. and a new way to plant oh, things. Yeah, like I corn, mean, yes, kind of a new, yeah. Oh, the corn that was and, and the squashes, new, right? And all that. Yeah. What is it? The three sisters: squash, beans, and corn. I think that's what the Native Americans planted. Yeah. So yeah, that's they're learning t- that totally different and a, a different way of uh, farming. Everything mm-hmm. was different, right? Uh, than what they knew in England. Mm-hmm. And so again, I mean, that's like a huge adjustment because mm. you know we we say this, but. Yeah. To change your yeah. diet, too. Yeah. You know, I mean, and the wheat wasn't working right. or growing like they That's had true. expected. So bread, which had been an English staple, mm. you know, it— it was Man. a different way of life. Go to corn, corn mash, corn. That's pump. right. But I mean, you know, and that's that's kind of a funny point because you think like as Americans, you know, you might anywhere in the world you go, you're like you can look for a McDonald's yeah. or even like a, I remember seeing a KFC and a Burger King when I was in Saigon. I'm like, OK, right. I mean, that's we can find something familiar. They had nothing familiar. That's I mean, this is nothing. All fresh yep. start. Yep. So that's actually a great point. And so and that actually was you're right. One of the reasons I hadn't written that down, but the, the, it was the hardship that kept 
driving them to these new locations. Right. And it's not yeah. like, oh, it's a better view there or, <laughs> you know, yeah. I like the the neighborhood better there. It was because we can't grow things here. Yeah. It's not working. We're starving. And so it was desperation moves. Interesting. Yeah. Which is, that's hard. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's an interesting byproduct. At least it did establish, I don't know, like villages or clearings, at least, where a village could be built for future. And so- mm-hmm. These eventually would become the cities and towns of New England. And mm-hmm. so um, the yeah. Bradstreets, because so after they were in Boston for a little while, they ended up moving to what would later become Cambridge. And then ultimately they helped found North Andover in 1646. And I believe they settled in here a little bit more. That's where they kind of got plugged in. And so uh, as Anne was running her household, raising the kids, she's dealing with all of these moves. Somehow in the midst of this, and I think this was an outlet for her, she found time to write poetry. Um, again, like I said, I think it was just an outlet, a way of expressing herself. It was kind of devotional in some cases, as we'll see. Um, so apparently Anne's brother-in-law, John Woodbridge, thought her poems were so good that in 1650, he, uh, again, without her knowledge, <laughs> he took some of them to England and had them printed in a volume called The Tenth Muse Lately Sprung Up in America. That's kind of a fun title. Now, now you didn't mention also that um, Anne Bradstreet had smallpox when she was a child. Yes. Oh, yes, that's true. She did. And, and so that was some of her weakness. Right. So she's, you know, she's in America, which is hard in its adjustment. But she also um, suffers throughout her life with a partial uh, paralysis. Yeah. You know, so we're baby. talking nine oh kids. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Nine pregnancies. Eight, eight kids, yeah. Yeah, eight kids. Eight pregnancies. Paralysis. <laughs> moving. New diet. In the wilderness. In yeah. the wilderness, America, <laughs> and constant threats. Threats in the weather, threats in the—they don't know the environment. Yeah. And they're just learning it. They're just learning it. Exactly. So, I mean, yeah, like you said earlier, it's kind of easy for us to say, but if you try to put yourself in her shoes, like, it's, it's actually really sweet that the Lord gave her this gift of poetry it, just to be able to— An outlet, right. Have an outlet. So— It's uh, beautiful. Yes, and it's neat because it's interesting, I should say, because this particular volume, um, The Tenth Muse, lately sprung up in America, <laughs> um, actually contained mostly, um, quote, poetic treatments of learned subjects. So it was mostly about like history, ancient monarchies and stuff like that put into um, uh, poetry. Kind of almost reminds me of like what Marguerite de Navarre did with theology, how she would translate that into poetry. I mean, that takes brilliance to put some of that stuff into a poetic frame. And so um, they were very sophisticated and very academic, um, so much so that one biographer said they are scholarly poems written in a style that would be expected more from a poet in a European court than a woman on the American frontier. And so, I mean, it was really remarkable. People were pretty floored by her writing, and it was very well received. Uh, One other biographer said that the book marked a milestone in English and American literature because it's kind of a bridge, right? She's English. I know, yes, we can say, oh, they were the first Americans, but, you know, they weren't born there in the colonies. They were English. So it's kind of a bridge thing. Uh, It contained the first verses by an American that could stand beside England's poetry. And more than that, it was the first volume of enduring English language poetry produced by a woman. So on so many levels, this was so remarkable. Um, And so, you know, obviously Anne becomes a little little bit more illustrious, I guess we should say, because of her writing. But as illustrious as you can be in the 1600s. Yes. <laughs> and 
you know, I mean, in America are, as a woman, right? And these are primitive colonies. Yes, very primitive. totally. Nobody expected something like I this mean, out of the colonies. There's no indoor plumbing. Let's just put it this yeah, way. Yeah. You're going to the river that probably in itself, yeah. right, to bring the water in. Uh, you know, everything's made out of wood and the you know wind comes whipping through. Yep. Snow. Right. So, um, and it's interesting, even though it was well received, she wasn't always appreciated in her time. Um, some of her contemporaries, uh, yeah, and this is, un, you know, not surprising for the time she lived in. They felt it was inappropriate for a woman to be writing poetry. It's like, what, what are you doing? Shouldn't you be out there? Like, you know, just when of course she was. She's raising the family. She's helping her husband. Um, but in her, but she kind of hints to this tension that there that was there with some people. Again, not everyone. Some people were supportive. Uh, in her poem, The Prologue, she said, I am obnoxious to each carping tongue who says my hand a needle better fits. Wow. So I should be like sewing, they say. Mm -hmm. But that didn't stop her. And uh, it's interesting. She wasn't afraid to get feisty about this a little bit. She just kept writing. And her poems are really important, uh, not just because she was the first American poet and a woman. I mean, that's really amazing. But uh, also because her later poetry that came after this time uh, offered a lot of really um valuable insight into Puritan life. Uh, and that, that these are actually the ones I'm going to be mentioning are some of the ones that would be more loved and known today. The, the, the initial volume, again, was academic. Later, her poetry was much more about everyday life, you know? And so it's, it's very sweet and simple. And, you know, Puritans, and we've kind of talked about this on several podcasts, they can often get a bad rap as these joyless, severe people H.L. Mencken famously said, Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. So have you ever heard that before? I love that no, quote. But I think, too, you've got, um, who was it that wrote um, The Scarlet Letter? Oh, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Yeah. yeah. And he yeah. really, and I think the Salem Witch Trials, mm -hmm. um, um, they gave the Puritans a bad rap. Yes. And I think that's where we get that idea that they were— you know, strict. You're having fun. Don't do severe. that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, again, some people think that the Scarlet Letter is, is history and it's not. He made it up. Right. And he made it up and, you know, he made it up as a tale that took place 200 years before he ever lived. So, <laughs> you know, we've got to take that all into into consideration. That's consideration, a great point. You know? Yeah. And so it's interesting. I actually, the way I really got to know Anne Bradstreet a little bit was through a literature class I took for my master's degree. And um, so I wanted to just kind of bring in what my professor said, because he made some really good points about all of that with the Puritans and with Anne. Um, his name was uh, Dr. Mark Schmidt. So I'm just giving him credit. Liberty University. A little shout out there. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. But he had us read some selections from her in this whole class on world literature. It was really interesting. But he kind of spoke to that point uh, about the Puritans. And he said, many literature textbooks have strong generalized prejudices against all of the Puritans and everything associated with them. It is true. They were not perfect Christians, obviously. But they sought to fully obey God in every area of life. Another problem is that too often people view Puritan culture as to totally oppressive, and they view today's Western culture as perfect, which is a great point. I'm going to circle back to that a little later on because that is something historically, Cheryl and I have mentioned this over the years, chronological, or over the years, over the, well, kind of, with the podcast. We've talked about chronological snobbery and how we can right. project on these people. That's right. Um, 
And you know what? The Puritans really did love life. They they celebrated all of God's good gifts to mankind. Yes, they were they could be strict and somber, and there were some bad things they did. You know, they didn't exactly treat Roger Williams that great when he they kicked him out and he had to go form the Rhode Island colony. And they didn't handle the Salem witch trials well. Yes, we know that. But there were some good things. Yeah. And Anne's poetry really speaks to this. She deals with the simple blessings and challenges and trials of everyday life um, as seen in nature, marriage, children, faith, all kinds of things. Uh, Dr. Schmidt said she gives us beautiful images of her family relationships and her relationship with God. She experiences the best fruits of a life and a culture guided by true Christianity. So I just want to give a, read a few examples of her more down-to-earth, everyday life poetry. Um, she wrote a lot of really sweet poems to her husband. And so that's kind of sweet. It makes me think he must have been supportive of her poetry, um, you know, because they had a really sweet relationship. And a lot of times she would write poems while he was away because she missed him if he was off on government business and or stuff hunting. like that. Or hunting. Or hunting. Yeah, yeah, trying to get, seriously put food on the table. Um, but I love this one. This was cute. She wrote, if ever two were one, then surely we. If ever man were loved by wife, then thee. If ever wife was happy in a man, compare with me, ye women, if you can. I prize thy love more than whole mines of gold or all the riches that the East doth hold. So, And that's just a stanza of one of her poems. But it showed they just had a really sweet relationship. Um, there were poems dealing with tragedy. Uh, she wrote this in 1665 when uh, one of her infant grandchildren died. Farewell, dear babe, my heart's too much content. Farewell, sweet babe, the pleasure of mine eye. Farewell, fair flower that for space was lent, then taken away unto eternity. And so I'm not reading the whole poem. I'm just trying to give you guys snippets. Just enough to make you cry. It's just, yeah, I know. It's so sweet. So uh, Anne also seemed to use her poetry as a means of processing hardships. Like I said, an outlet, getting her eyes back on the Lord. Um, for example, uh, here's something she wrote in 1666. It was called Verses Upon the Burning of Our House. Mm -hmm. But I love how she brings it back to the Lord here. Thou hast a house on high erect, framed by that mighty architect, with glory richly furnished, stands permanent, though this be fled. It's purchased and paid for, too, by him who hath enough to do. A price so vast as is unknown, yet by his gift is made thine own. There's wealth enough, I need no more. Farewell, myself, farewell, my store. The world no longer let me love. My hope and treasure lies above. So when their house burned down, yeah, this is how. But when her house burned down, did you know she had brought a library over with her of 800 books? Wow, yeah. And she lost her library. I mean, books. That's huge. It, exactly. That's Gosh, what Jess that and I are saying. Me. We're like <laughs> right now just grieving. But she lost books. I mean, she lost things mm. that she brought from England that were irreplaceable. That's just to her, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that even, and, and her outlet was to write with depth, you know? Yes. And to say, okay, Lord, I mean, I have to look to my eternal home and not hold too tight to these things on earth. Amazing. Uh, she wrote this. Uh, she also wrote a lot of poems as prayers, kind of like that. For instance, uh, when she wrote, upon my daughter Hannah, her recovery from a dangerous fever. Again, these are just daily things in life. Blessed be thy name who didst restore to health my daughter dear, when death did seem even to approach and life was ended near. Grant she remembered that what thou hast done and celebrate thy praise, and let her conversation say she loves thee all her days. Like, thank you for healing her. May she serve you all the days of her life. I mean, I just love that. These vibrant but very simple expressions of just life's joys and sorrows. One historian said that her poetry shows a Puritan could combine passion, love of children, good furniture, humor, <laughs> that the female Puritan, in short, could be both a Puritan and a woman of great charm. 
Um, and so somebody else said that her writings debunk the myth of the stodgy, prudish Puritan so long a part of the American psyche. So this is why she was important on so many levels. And her relationship with the Lord was so vibrant. And Dr. Schmidt talked a lot actually about that, about, uh, you know, how modern academics and historians might view her. But to view her in her own right, and, and I want to read this quote from him because I think this is really cool for us, even just to consider in the 21st century. And this is important with some of these historic figures. There's a lot of women that get propped up by like the feminist movement or by secularists and made to be not exactly what they were. Uh, they've done this with Harriet Beecher Stowe as well. He says, carefully study Bradstreet's thoughts and emotions and relationships. Let her speak for herself. She feels a great deal of peace and comfort in her social context. She was not a person fighting for her rights or the rights of women. She's an intelligent, honest woman who loves her husband, family, and God. She's well-educated, thoughtful, at peace in the storms of life. We should not impose the goals of our culture with its harsh individualism and where people are in your face expressing their uniqueness on people like Bradstreet. We often impose our goals on people in the past and believe that she was striving like we want to strive today and assume that our goals are the same. But it's extremely doubtful she would want the independent, self-centered consumer lifestyle of current Western culture. <laughs> and I just think that's interesting, an interesting point to just appreciate these people in their context. I love it. I love, I, that. love that. Yeah, and not be anachronistic, yeah. but to recognize. But also, too, I mean, um, this is something I don't know if you're going to say this, but mm. there's a gate named after her at Harvard. Oh, neat. I didn't know that, yeah. actually. I didn't see that. Yeah. That's so sweet. So um, two of her sons graduated from Harvard, and I think they began uh, to work there, Samuel and Simon. Neat. And they maybe they were part of having Honoring a her. gate. I but, love that. But that's, I think, because her works were so good. Yes. And that's not to say she—I mean, she did. She said, well, some people think I shouldn't write, but I'm going to do it anyway. She still used her God-given yeah. gifts. Yeah. But it was in the context— of where she was, and she just enjoyed what God had given her in life. In fact, in closing, I just want to let her speak for herself as well. Um, there's a few really beautiful expressions of her faith in Jesus. She said, Among all my experiences of God's gracious dealings with me, I have constantly observed this, that he has never suffered me long to sit loose from him, but by one affliction or other has made me look home and search what was amiss, searching and coming back to him. And even though she did struggle with doubt and uncertainty, um, circumstantially and spiritually, she, you know, like many of us, she went through crisis of faith, but she ultimately had her hope in the Lord and said, there is but one Christ who is the son of righteousness in the midst of an innumerable company of saints and angels. Those saints have their degrees even in this life, yet all receive their luster, be it more or less, from the glorious son that enlightens all in all. And then shortly before she died in 1672, she died of consumption, what we would call tuberculosis. She wrote this uh, in her account of her spiritual journey for her children. She said, Upon this rock, Jesus Christ, will I build my faith, and if I perish, I perish. But I know all the powers of hell shall never prevail against it. I know whom I have trusted and whom I have believed, and that he is able to keep what I have committed to his charge. So just a radiant faith. And that's a life. quote from Paul. So she knows her Bible. She too. did know her Bible. Absolutely. And you see that come out all the time in her writing. So she's just a beautiful second example. Timothy. Mm -hmm. I love Anne Bradstreet for all yes. those reasons. The yes. first American poet, the first woman American poet, and uh, just a key insight into Puritan life that she gives us. So, yeah. So that's why we brought you Anne <laughs> Bradstreet Yay. today. And we're so glad that you were able to listen to us. Again, we'd love to hear from you. Write to us at graciouswords.com and look for the link WWK. And this <laughs> is Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut. And saying until next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett.